broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network. This is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Hello, my friends. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. We're trying to reach our guest for this evening. Her name is Nell Bernstein. She's the uh, author of All Alone in the World, Children of the Incarcerated. And here's a couple of uh, thoughts I wanted to relay to you. One in ten American children has a parent who is under penal supervision, either incarcerated, on probation, or on parole. She also writes that one in 33 Americans... Uh, American children, excuse me, overall, and one in eight African-American children have a parent behind bars today. She also tells us that one half of all boys who have a parent in jail or prison will also wind up serving time in prison. They do tell me that we have Nell on uh, the line now. Let's go ahead and bring her on board, Philip. Miss Bernstein. Hi, Hey, hello. Well, welcome to uh, Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. Thanks for having me. Yes, ma'am. I just finished your book this evening, and I, I want to tell you it is uh, it's it's uh, marvelous and it's heart wrenching just the same. Uh, please uh, tell us what what brought you to the the point you wanted to write this book. What what began that process? Well, you know, it was sort of a, a convergence of things. I started um, really thinking about this issue when I was editing a youth newspaper at Pacific News Service in San Francisco. And this was probably 10 years ago, so it was um, kind of the height of the family values era. And politically, I was hearing left and right that the thing that was destroying our communities was a lack of family values. And while I was spending my days with teenagers who valued their families tremendously but were facing incredible pressures when they tried to hold on to those families, and I, I became interested in, in that disconnect. And then I met a particular kid who had literally been left behind in an empty apartment when his mother was arrested with his brother, who was an infant. And that really is what set me on the journey that became the book. And and no, it's it as I say, it it can tear your heart out. Some of these stories that, I, as you say, early in the book, you write about the fact that many of these kids, when their parents are busted uh, for whatever crime, and it, it is predominantly drugs that I think you write about in your book, that the, the kids are um, often just left in the apartment. Uh, no, no public uh, assistance is called for, and and they're left to fend for themselves. Well, you know, the first time I heard that story, I, I as I mentioned, it was a nine-year-old boy who, um, for whatever reason, the police took his mom and just left him with his baby brother and he spent two weeks taking care of the baby before somebody noticed him out by himself with a stroller every day uh, that situation um, it wasn't the only time I heard that story but it's fairly rare what's a lot more common is that you know they'll arrest a mother during school hours and the kids come home from school and get off the bus and nobody's there that that does happen all the time and uh, I hate to say it that's almost a better scenario than uh, the, the, the alternative where these kids wind up, in essence, jailed themselves, put put behind bars for uh, a few days or weeks while relatives are found and, uh, and, and or never found. And the children are then handed over to foster parents. It, it, tell us about uh, some of those scenarios. 
Well, that, that was the other sort of kind of seminal story that I kept hearing was a child describing seeing his mother, sometimes his father or both, put in the back of a police car. And he recalls being put in the back of a second police car himself and taken to a children's shelter. But as one kid put it, it, it was a kitty jail, a jail for kids. Um, and a lot of them describe the rooms in the children's shelter as cells. And uh, of course, they're not. But a kid who is, you know, picked up by uniformed officers, put in the back of a police car and taken to a building where he is probably, you know, stripped of his clothes and given someone else's clothes and is not allowed to leave, that kid is going to experience himself as being arrested. And over and over, kids told me that was exactly how they felt. I see all too often the uh, the mothers of these children uh, being sent up the river, so to speak, as well as, as the husbands when uh, perhaps they have done no crime. They're, they're only as guilt by association or proximity, I suppose, if the husband is involved in a, a drug gang and, and they get caught in a conspiracy charge. Your, your thoughts on that? Well, um, yeah, a couple of my chapters deal with families that were broken up under those laws. Uh, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the stories in my book deal with um, the effects of the drug war. Not all of them, but although... The drug laws aren't responsible for the entire prison population. They are responsible for the growth in the prison population over the past 20 years. And I don't want to go off on a big tangent, but I do want to just make sure I say that today, one in 10 kids has a parent who's either in jail, in prison, on probation, or on parole. Uh, the way that the conspiracy provisions play into this and the reason that they affect women in particular is... Um, under mandatory sentencing laws, the only way to get what's called a downward departure, a modification of your sentence, is to make a plea agreement or offer substantial cooperation to prosecutors. It's not unusual for women who are maybe involved with a man who's involved with drugs simply to not have enough information to be able to do that. The result is they have nothing to trade on, um, and they wind up being held responsible for the weight of drugs that the entire quote-unquote conspiracy is determined to have distributed. And and no way out, no uh, ability to snitch on anybody because they don't know anything. Right, I mean, yes, often that's the case. And uh, I, I did note within your book, you, you made note of uh, some stats that I, I hear from prison wardens and, and others that I interview here that perhaps as many as 80% of the people in some jurisdictions and in some state prisons, I think was your quote, are there on uh, for drugs or a drug lifestyle, so to speak. You, you talk about the fact that we need to <laughs> Mirandize to... Uh, alleviate the fears of these children to have provisions in place to to take care of these children's uh, caught up in the, this type scenario uh, your thoughts well, I, yeah i mean i i do some work with a group in san francisco called the san francisco children of incarcerated parents partnership and we organize our work around what we call a bill of rights for children of incarcerated parents if your listeners are interested you can see it at sfcipp.org um and say, say that again, please. It's um, www.sfcip, S-F-C, as in children, I-double-P-dot-O-R-G. Thank you. Um, and it, you, know, you can see the Bill of Rights there and the steps that we believe need to be taken so that children would have some rights. Because one of the most shocking things I discovered is that children whose parents are arrested and incarcerated have even less rights than the individual who's arrested or incarcerated. You know, if you're in prison... 
the state is required to make sure you're fed and clothed and have health care. There's no such obligation towards the children who are who are left behind. When somebody is arrested, a police officer is required to read them basic rights. Uh, courts, in a number of cases, have not found officers liable for harm that befalls those children who are left behind at the scene of an arrest. So children don't even have basic rights at the moment when the government literally removes their parents. Um, so that's really what I mean, is that there needs to really be a children's rights movement around the issue of arrest and incarceration. And it's, it's often said that uh, the children of those arrested for whatever uh, reason uh, are better off that uh, those their their parents are are you know just bad people, yeah. and, and yet uh, too often the the children wind up in in a much worse scenario. I, I want to read from uh, your your page your uh, chapter on foster care. Quote: Children in foster crime are extremely vulnerable. All fifty states have failed a federal foster care review designed to measure their capacity to protect children from abuse and neglect and find them permanent homes. And this is according to Richard Gels, a professor of social work at the University of Pennsylvania. And a, a quote from him: "Quote: No one is able to identify a child welfare agency in the United States that actually works. There are none. There are no best practices." End quote. Your, your thoughts there, please. Well, you know, the question of whether children are better off, um, it goes beyond foster care because most, most kids don't wind up in foster care, but I, I've done a fair amount of, for example, AM talk radio around the book, and I get that question from callers a lot. Aren't these kids better off without these, you know, bad parents? Um, and I think you have to look at that from two angles. One is the one that you raised, that state, the state sub substitute that we provide is uh, simply a, a dismal failure. And, you know, there's some research indicating that kids whose parents have been incarcerated are more likely to be incarcerated themselves. But there's a much stronger body of research indicating that the single best predictor that somebody's going to wind up incarcerated isn't having an incarcerated parent. It's being in foster care. So when you, when you talk about kids being better off, I think that's worth keeping in mind. But, you know, more profoundly, my book is very much grounded in what the hundreds of kids I spoke with told me. And what they told me was they need their parents. They may need their parents to get drug treatment. They may need whatever problem sent that parent to prison solved. But their connection to their parents who have broken one law or another is exactly as strong and deep and abiding as my children's connection to me and i think that's really the bottom line that we overlook and indeed uh family first i i think if at all possible um you, you tell the story in here about uh, some women who uh, suffered a traumatic uh, shock so to speak i guess that uh, the 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 time in prison makes them where they they forget how to turn a doorknob or, or turn on a light that uh the readaptation to society yeah. is, is so slow and, and painful. Your, your thoughts on that? Well, one of my chapters, what I tried to do is look at the criminal justice system essentially chronologically from arrest through reentry as kids experience it. And one of the chapters deals with reentry. And I, I talk about a family um, in Mobile, Alabama, Dorothy Gaines and her kids. Just briefly, Dorothy was sort of one of the better known victims of the conspiracy laws. She essentially really had very little or no involvement with. Um, the quote-unquote drug ring that she was convicted for being part of. 
was sentenced to 19 years when her children were young, um, miraculously got clemency after six at the end of President Clinton's second term, and came home to these kids, Philip and Chara, who had been literally standing on a street corner with a sign with her picture on it and a petition trying to get her home. And I went to see them about a year after she got home, and, you know, they had just been bitterly disappointed, partly because we put so many restrictions on people with drug convictions that this mother, who'd been a nurse technician and the sole support of her family, had turned into a dependent because we had incapacitated her by law. Um, but also psychologically, I, I remember her son Philip saying, she's not herself, she's free, but in her mind it's like she's still confined. And I think you don't want to kind of overlook the psychological trauma of prison in the way that that affects families. In, in my uh, understanding of this, there, there are oft times that uh, these children, again, uh, caught up in the system, wind up being sexually abused, uh, traumatized, and oftentimes wind up uh, seeking relief through drugs themselves yeah. and caught up in the system. Your thought? I mean, that is just one of the bitterest ironies. And, you know, I, I'm sure that you and your listeners are probably aware of this, but there is no evidence that the war on drugs has uh, stemmed the use of drugs. And I think there's a fair amount of evidence that it may actually be perpetuating the cycle. Uh, last night I I saw the sister of Danielle Metz, who is, is a woman in my book who's doing triple life plus 20 years for her involvement in her husband's drug business. Um, her sister read a letter in which Danielle said something that just really leapt out at me. She said, people now fear losing their children to the war on drugs more than they do to drugs. At least with drugs, you can get them some help. And I, I think, you know, that's really the terrifying reality. That's so true. Uh, a good friend of mine, the director of law enforcement against prohibition, has a quote that goes more like, you can get over an, an addiction, but you'll never get over a conviction. And uh, that's Oh, yeah, that's, that's the same thing, because that's right. There's no legal requirement that you check a box on your job application saying, have you ever had a drug problem? But if you've got a drug conviction... You know, you've got that scarlet letter for life. Right. Uh, no, no more credit, no more uh, housing support, no more uh, educational support. And uh, truthfully, for many people, the only job opportunity left uh, when they're it, at the end of that rope is the black market. Again, uh, yeah, your thoughts? Um, well, absolutely. And from children's perspective, you know, there's this this term that researchers use to describe the tendency of people to go in and out of jail and prison over and over, and they use the term churning. Uh, I think of children being churned as their parents go through this cycle over and over. And, you know, another thing that people ask me, for example, on call-in radio is, you know, well, these are, shouldn't people have thought about this before they went and used drugs or sold drugs? I mean, these are irresponsible parents. They need to be accountable to their children. And I agree with that wholeheartedly, and it's certainly something that the children made clear to me. The problem is when you take a drug conviction and make that cause a person to be ineligible to work, you're actually making it impossible for them to make amends and be accountable to their children. This is so true. Nell, we're just about out of time. I, I want to remind the listeners once again, we are speaking with Nell Bernstein. She's the author of All Alone in the World, Children of the Incarcerated. I, I want to 
commend you, Nell, for a, a great uh, piece of work here. I recommend it highly to the listeners. Uh, it is, uh, who's it published by? The, uh, the New Press. New Press. It, it is uh, a very worthwhile read. Uh, Nell, thank you so much for being our guest, and uh, please keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thanks for your work. All right. It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Headache, fatigue, arthralgia, bleeding, rigors, gastroenteritis, vaginitis, tonsillitis, abnormal liver function, depression, brain infection, and death. Time's up. The answer for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, Desabre, Natalizumab. Found this one on 666. Seems appropriate. From Biogen, IDEC, and Elon Laboratories. According to Andrew Pollock of the New York Times, federal regulators agreed to let this drug return to the market after a few months of being banned, despite its risk of causing a fatal brain disease. Meanwhile, possession of another drug that can provide superior relief to MS patients and which has never caused a single death or serious side effect can net you up to life in prison. The other drug, the one for which the U.S. Institute of Medicine stated, quote, the side effects are within the acceptable risks associated with approved medications. Indeed, some of the side effects, such as anxiety reduction and sedation, might be desirable, end quote. Of course, that eternally banned medicine is cannabis, medical marijuana. Everyone knows that there is a link between crime and the use of alcohol and other drugs. The question is, what is that link? Ireland's Health Research Board recently released a study which attempts to answer that question. The report identifies four possible scenarios. First is the psychopharmacological model. This is the notion that, quote, the effects of intoxication cause criminal, especially violent, behavior, or that aggression and crime can be caused by, for example, the effects of withdrawal or sleep deprivation, end quote. Research does show a strong correlation between alcohol use and violent crime. This link does not appear to be true in regard to heroin or marijuana, use, in any case, correlation is not the same as proof of causation. The second scenario is economic. This model, quote, assumes that drug users need to generate illicit income from crimes such as robbery and burglary or from consensual crimes such as prostitution to support their drug habits. Research also shows that drug dependency amplifies offending behavior, particularly in relation to property crime, end quote. And it is the case that many arrestees test positive for drugs. However, these are only the offenders who have been caught. Not all crimes are solved. In the United States, for example, authorities are able to identify and charge an offender in only 16% of property crimes and 50% of violent crimes overall. Probably their alcohol and other drug use made these particular arrestees more likely to get caught, while sober offenders get away clean. The third scenario is a systemic model in which drug-related crime results from activities associated with the illicit drug market. It's certainly the case that violence is sometimes used to secure drug market areas and to enforce debt collection. However, such activities are not often resorted to. Rather, drug markets primarily impact the quality of life and the social environment. The report noted that, quote, problems of social disorder were found to be central factors affecting the quality of life of the residents of all the estates studied. Such problems were found to have the greatest impact on residents' quality of life through direct experience of antisocial behavior, a general loss of communal space, and a sense of personal safety and negative labeling of estates in the wider community, end quote. The 
The fourth scenario is called the common cause model. This model, quote, suggests that the relationship between drugs and crime is less clear and perhaps one related to underlying social factors poses a far greater challenge to policymakers. It suggests that strategies for dealing with drug-related crime must move beyond the individual and address the environmental context in which both drug use and crime occur in order to be more effective, end quote. This much simpler explanation seems in most cases to be nearest the truth. Unfortunately, while simpler to understand, this explanation is harder for governments to deal with. Solving these problems will take more than locking people up. On the other hand, governments were created to deal with tough problems. A copy of the report, Drugs and Crime in Ireland, is available online from Ireland's Health Research Board as well as from the Common Sense for Drug Policy Research Archive. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. Hello, this is Phil Jackson, and thanks to Dean Becker, I've been privileged to bring you each week what I call a black perspective on the drug war. But what is a black perspective? Well, it's not about seeing every issue in terms of race. It is about sharing a point of view that's informed by the experience of being a victim of a culture that maintains its power through lies, the most fundamental of which is the lie of the subhuman other. Racism, sexism, nationalism, all are based on the same false idea that some people are less human than others. Once a society allows itself to devalue and dehumanize a group of people in order to exploit, exclude, or even destroy them without shame or guilt, it establishes a pattern of injustices that range from emotional and sexual abuse to slavery and genocide. The drug war thrives because it targets the black, the brown, and the poor, populations that our culture deems less than human. The legislators who enacted the first laws against marijuana did so because it was smoked by Mexican immigrants. Those who use cocaine in the form of crack, predominantly black people, are punished far more severely than whites who use powder cocaine. And poor people addicted to drugs are called morally degenerate criminals who must go to prison. While rich people have substance abuse problems and may get help at the Betty Ford Clinic. The experience of growing up black in America is only one of many ways of becoming conscious of the lie of the subhuman other. But it is the perspective that has allowed me to see the unjust nature of the war on drugs. And that's why I share that perspective with you. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Under U.S. occupation... Illegal Afghan opium production has increased nearly 30-fold since 2001. In each of the last two years, U.S.-occupied Afghanistan has produced enough heroin to supply a single dose to every member of Earth's human population. As the Bush administration continues whistling past the Afghan graveyard, the current production level of 20 million doses per day is expected to rise in 2006. This year's fledgling poppy eradication program has failed to disrupt overall cultivation levels. The crops of the better off are protected by bribes, while those too poor to pay are forced to bear the complete economic impact of eradication. 
hundreds of desperately poor Afghan farmers continue to press their claims that they were never paid as promised after voluntarily destroying their crops. The victims of eradication include young girls who are sometimes sold by their families to repay debt incurred during planting. Canada's top soldier, General Rick Hillier, this week reportedly proclaimed heroin a weapon of mass destruction in order to help justify Canada's military role in Afghanistan. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. Uh, next up, we'll hear from uh, Bird Colonel equivalent, a G-14, a man with 32 uh, years, I believe it is, experience as a border and customs official and a member of law enforcement against uh, prohibition. Uh, my report today is on the available alternatives to the failed war on drugs. Failed may seem harsh, yet the fact is that in 35 years, nothing has changed. Since President Nixon declared the war on drugs, in 1971, the information disseminated by the United States government has outlined progress. Most of us assume that the information is accurate. I, as a federal officer, thought this for many years until I decided to do my own research, and now my beliefs have changed. The official government reports are stellar examples of propaganda. Tell them what they want to hear. I've heard that way too many times. The fact is that many other countries, Canada, Switzerland, Holland, the Czech Republic, among them offer real-time policy alternatives. Most remarkable, perhaps, is the policy that the Czech Republic has chosen to follow. In 1989, after the fall of the Soviet Russia, the country of Czechoslovakia was divided. The Czech Republic was a product of that division. The Czech people lived under very repressive regimes for a long time. Therefore, it would be expected that when given complete freedom of choice, drug issues would arise. However, the exact opposite is true. While they do have a high percentage of marijuana smokers, alternative drugs are not demonizing Czech citizens. The Czech government does not have the same war on drugs mentality as the United States government, nor do they share the same problems. In fact, by definition, they don't have a drug problem at all. The Czech Republic is estimated to have 20,000 addicts out of a population of approximately 10 million, or about 1.5% of its population. The U.S. in 1914, before the Harrison Drug Act, had an estimated 1.6 addiction rate. Today, that addiction rate is still approximately 1.6, in spite of the costly war on drugs effort. However, the U.S. has less than 4% of the world's population, but more than 20% of the world's prisoners. So if these numbers tell the story, a repressive drug policy makes no difference in the number of citizens addicted to drugs, but does have an alarming result in the number of people incarcerated in its prisons. The facts speak for themselves. It's widely accepted that there, are, there exist three types of drug policies, a repressive model utilized by the U.S., a model of harm, risk reduction, minimization, the Dutch, for example, and a model of cultural inter integration, normalization, the Czechs, which appears to me to be the preferred method. So do your own research. Google it. The United States has followed a drug policy for the past 30 years with absolutely no difference made in the amount of quality amount of quality of drugs available to its population. The only thing this failed policy has done is enrich the drug cartels, triple the DEA staff, which isn't bad for 30 years, but in increase their budget from $75 million to $2.1 billion, that's 28.5 times larger, and made building new prisons the fastest growing industry in the United States. Alternatives exist. Failure is not an option. It is time for a change. It's broke. Let's fix it. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, 
at www.leap.cc, signing off. Uh, let's see, uh, going to do the luncheon address at the Libertarian uh, State Convention tomorrow, and their website, www.tx.lb.org. I'm sharing the bill with Congressman Ron Paul, I'm very proud of that. Then I'm flying to New York for additional seminars and to begin my first video production for the Drug Truth Network. We'll be filming sessions, hopefully, with Jim Hightower, the uh, national radio commentator and writer, Congressman Maurice Henchy, talk show host Montel Williams, philanthropist was Peter Williams, Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau, and ACLU Executive Director Anthony Romero. We're going to call the TV show The Unvarnished Truth. Heard from a couple of folks about Whacking Day. That's scheduled for October 27th, the last Saturday before Election Day. And I've decided that your pinata or painting or whatever representation you want to create does not have to be an elected official. It can be some corporate wacko like Ken Lay, a probation officer, an ex-girlfriend, whatever. It's your day to express your feelings. The choice is yours to make. Learn more, win one of our cash rewards, uh, visit our website, www.drugtruth.net, for more details. Next week, we'll be bringing you radio interviews of our trip to New York. Quick note, I want to make note that Dr. Bill Martin has uh, joined the Leadership Council of the Interfaith Drug Policy Initiative, and uh, they're telling me we're out of time because of drug prohibition. You don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of the